Good afternoon to our UK Column viewers and listeners. Now, we've got a very special guest this afternoon, and that is Andrew Bridgen, MP. Uh, we're delighted to invite him onto the UK Column, and he's uh, promised us about an hour to talk to us. And um, what, do we, what do we hope to do in this interview? Well, we hope to give Andrew the opportunity to talk about matters which he thinks are serious and to give him a platform essentially for free speech. So, Andrew Bridgen, welcome to UK Column. Wow, thank you, Ryan. Now, I, I would like to just read a little bit of text to kick things off. Um, we've, uh, I've got a copy of a letter that was sent to you by Doctors for Patients UK, and um, I thought it was a rather lovely letter. So I just want to read just a few sentences that they, they had said to you in that letter. And I think it sets the scene for the viewers. Um, but we'll then jump to a little bit of your background. But let's read this rather lovely little opening paragraph. It says, um, Dear Mr. Bridgen, following your powerful and truth-filled speeches in Parliament in December 2022 and 9th of March 2023, raising awareness of the dangers of the COVID-19 vaccines, the corruptions surrounding their rollout, and the plight of the vaccine injured and bereaved, Doctors for Patients UK wish to express our collective gratitude and support for the principled and courageous stand you have taken to try to protect the public from unnecessary harm. Your expert analysis of the official data and scientific evidence have very clearly exposed serious safety concerns about mRNA vaccines and also highlighted the ethical and economic failings in the rollout of these novel therapies. We believe your actions are amongst the finest applications of parliamentary privilege in living memory. Well, that is a rather lovely accolade, and uh, I know that I can speak on behalf of the UK column uh, viewers and listeners that this is something you absolutely deserve. But before we come on to the meat of how this uh, response came to you, I want to do something very simple and say, you're an MP, just tell us a little bit about um, why you decided to become an MP. How did you do it? When did it happen? Oh, I, I got dragged in gradually. I actually joined the Conservative Party in 1983, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Nottingham University in the, uh, in the Thatcher years. I'm a middle of the road Thatcherite. Um, I'm probably considered a right winger now. Um, but I haven't actually gone anywhere, which is interesting. I haven't gone anywhere at all. I've just stayed where I am. A middle-of-the-road Thatcherite. Um, I have left university. I joined the Royal Marines. That didn't really work out for me. Set up a business to look after the family. That went very well. A couple of decades building that up from a £1,000 startup. And we were turning over uh, 25 million, employing 300 people. Very, very successful food company. Um, I got that pretty much under control. I was doing half a day a week voluntary for the Institute of Directors as their East Midlands Regional Chairman. I came into contact with a lot of uh, Tony Blair's ministers through that role, and I, I thought they were pretty incompetent and were certainly going to bankrupt us. Um, I got involved in business for Sterling and the No campaign, 
and uh, we put some money behind behind those campaigns to keep us out of the euro. I could see that was going to be a disaster if we had a one-size-fits-all interest rate for the whole of Europe. Um, and then I gave money to the Conservative Party in 2005. And when I saw the swing of only half a percent, I thought we're wasting our time here. And I used to go to the pub um, on a Friday night and met a lot of other small and medium-sized business people. And everyone moaned every Friday. And I think eventually it was one pint of Marston's pedigree too many. And I said, OK, we've had enough of this. Let's take take back control or take control. Um, Northwest Leicestershire was considered a very, very safe Labour seat, a no hope seat for the Conservatives. Uh, the council, I don't think it had been Labour for decades. Uh, I think we were down to, I think, five or six Conservatives out of 38 councillors. And I said, look, if you all stand for the council, uh, I'll stand for MP, we'll take over and everything will be better. And um, given their due, my, my group of friends to a man and a woman, they all said they would stand. They did stand. Um, I put the money up for uh, the campaigns. I got selected as the candidate for Northwest Leicestershire Conservatives. Um, that was by open primary. Uh, I won an open primary with public uh, voting. Um, and as I say, the rest is history. We took the control of Northwest Leicester District Council in 2007, barely 18 months later, um, with the biggest swing against Labour in the country. Um, so we took Labour down to five councillors out of 38 in one night. Um, the sitting Labour MP, he was much loved by the public. Um, I think he realised the game was up at that stage. Um, later, he retired, announced he was retiring, and sadly, he passed away on Boxing Day 2009. Um, and Gordon Brown wouldn't give us a by-election. I think he knew what was coming. Um, I, only, I only had the second largest swing against Labour in uh, 2010. I took the seat from 4,500 Labour to 7,500 Conservative. Um, I got the backing then of a, of a Conservative District Council that was completely coterminous with my constituency, and we made great things happen. So we've, we've taken, in 13 years, we've taken the, what was considered the most deprived town in Leicestershire, Colville, which is the major conurbation in northwest Leicestershire, um, from the poor relation to... Um, well, the most prosperous part of Leicestershire. So my, my conceit is the only part of Leicestershire that now has above UK average salaries. We brought in a lot of business uh, into the area. Uh, we've got very good communication links. We've got an airport. Uh, we've got the new national forest. So on top of all my old coal mines, we've got 35-year-old trees, which are about 35, 30 feet tall. It's absolutely beautiful place to live. So I said when I got elected, I wanted to make North Leicestershire a better place to live, work and to visit. And I think we've delivered on that. Um, we've got the longest council tax freeze in the history of the UK. So from the day we took over from Labour, uh, we've never put the council tax up at the district council in 15 years. I think we've got the highest economic growth in the UK. We've got masses of uh, retained business rates, which has allowed us to build a £22 million sports and leisure centre for Colville, uh, which is the envy of uh, not only the county, but the whole of the East Midlands. Um, we've got 1.2 jobs in the constituency for everyone of working age, almost no unemployment, and my majority went up at every election. So 2015, my majority went up to 11,200. Uh, 17, despite Theresa May's best efforts with her manifesto, it went to 13,300. 
and um, I led Brexit for the East Midlands, leave the East Midlands. Um, and in 19, my majority was 20,400, uh, 63% of all the votes. Now I've lost, I've lost the Conservative whip. And Andrew, a really interesting background there because you, you've, got a, you've got a business background. You mentioned the military briefly. I think you also got or would say that you've got a scientific component in your background. Yeah, and Nottingham University. I was really interested in biological sciences um, and genetics was very interesting. So um, I specialised, I think my subsidiary first year was biochemistry and then I specialised in genetics and uh, my final dissertation was on viruses and viroids. So, well, you've done part of my job for me because you've mentioned uh, losing the whip, um, but you're, you're a very experienced politician. You've been out there, you've been doing the job, you know you've been doing the job well because of the response from, from the public. And it uh, seems to me that you then go through a parliamentary career that suddenly comes up against a very firm rock. So you you lost the whip. What caused that? Uh, going against the narrative, um, speaking out against the vaccines. Um, there was a, a tweet which perhaps I shouldn't have put out, but it was, in my view, fairly innocuous. Um, I put a tweet out retweet, retweeting a paper from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, a doctor there of criminology who was actually talking about behaviour. Um, and um, and it was considered to be anti-Semitic. It actually said that the, the rollout of the vaccines will be the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. It was deemed by some to be uh, anti-Semitic. It was neither diminishing nor denying the Holocaust. It was saying since. Um, and I've had huge support from the Jewish community over that, including the, uh, the, the doctor um, in the Hebrew University who I was re-quoting re his papers, um, and also 25 of the world's leading uh, Jewish doctors and scientists have written an open letter to number 10, um, complaining that I should have the whip put back immediately and that um, uh, falsely accusing people of anti-Semitism diminishes anti-Semitism and also raising concerns that stopping free speech is the first sign of a totalitarian regime, which clearly they would be have concerns about. Last Tuesday, I, uh, I was asked to speak on the issue of vaccine harms um, in a synagogue in, in Westminster, and uh, quite a lot of people wanted to have their photograph taken with me. Excellent is my response to that. I'll just add that UK Column has talked now to, to quite a considerable number of um, qualified professionals, um, and they also include um, Jewish members of the, com of the scientific community who've been prepared to talk to us about um, COVID-19 and vaccine problems. So this is an area which, uh, yes, it's wrong if this is made as a political weapon, I think. But can I ask the key question then, what, what was happening that actually alerted you to the fact that something was not right with what, COVID-19 policy or to do with the vaccine, vaccination policy itself? What, what was the trigger for you to take an interest? Well, I, I had growing concerns with the whole pandemic response. It didn't seem to me to be scientific. It didn't seem to be following the science. And as I'd also studied behaviour, I was getting very concerned about uh, the nudge unit in number 10 becoming the shove unit. 
and I felt that they were shoving my constituents about, and I, I don't like that. The, during the lockdown, Brian, I mean, I was being alerted to, by the police uh, to the number of suicides in my constituency, and, and we were having more suicides a month than I'd expect in two years. And um, I couldn't speak out about it because I was so worried about having copycat uh, um, events going on. And uh, it was clearly traumatising vulnerable people in my constituency. And I felt it was over the top and unnecessary. I looked into the science. Um, I voted against uh, everything after the second lockdown. Um, I would have voted against the, the second lockdown um, because... Um, but I was given assurances from number 10 that they'd done a full impact assessment and looked at the wider impact on children, especially, which I was concerned about and closing the schools. And they told me it all stacked up. Unfortunately, I, I found out later, Brian, that there was no such impact assessment. And you know, Boris Johnson could be in trouble over what he might have not said over the, the party gate affairs. But for me, uh, the biggest disappointment with him was whether he misled me over doing that impact assessment because that actually altered my vote uh, ultimately but um my concerns by uh, by the christmas and the plan b debate uh, were immense I, I studied the data coming out of south africa regarding the omicron variant it, it had attenuated which is the normal thing that viruses do as they as they evolve they tend to become more transmissible and, and less pathogenic and it was clear that that's what had happened from south africa and then for the government to want further mask mandates, mandates on NHS staff to be vaccinated, um, lockdowns over Christmas, I voted against every single one of those issues and spoke against it in the chamber, uh, pointed out that uh, Omicron was going to be, for most people, nothing more than a cold. This was an overreaction and I couldn't back uh, up uh, NHS staff being mandated and potentially losing their jobs um, over this. And at the end of that speech, I think the last line of that speech, uh, which would have been in December 21, was that the only pandemic we've really been suffering around the world in the UK is a pandemic of fear. And that's got to stop. And uh, and following that, um, I think I pretty much staked my flag on, on my turf. And when, when, you know, sometime later, the, the vaccines have been rolled out, I'm looking at the efficacy and being bombarded by information that says that they're not safe. Uh, the vaccine harms are very real. Um, I saw that it's, it probably around one in 800 of those taking uh, a dose were at risk of a severe adverse event. And it was when the MHRA, then before Christmas, were recommending that the, uh, the jabs were extended to children under five down to six months of age um, I just thought this is a complete step too far. And, and I realised I was going to get a lot of pushback for going against the narrative. And I didn't want to do it for nothing. And so I thought that was a hill I could I could win on because even the most pro-vaccine um, person out there, I thought I could persuade them that there was really no risk to these very small children uh, from COVID-19, but there was a, was a risk from, from the vaccine itself. And uh, it's fair to say that the government will never admit it. But I mean, in, in a few months and a few speeches from me, uh, they've gone from a position of wanting to vaccinate everybody down to babies of six months to nobody, nobody under the age of, of 75. Um, I think that's, well, we'll call that a win. Um, 
though I doubt the government will ever give me any credit for it, obviously. Um, and I would point out that the difference is in America, they, they are vaccinating babies down to six months, which uh, is quite honestly, I think that's, um, that's appalling. I would agree with you on that. Um, we've, we've got two issues here, and, and I'm fascinated that you, you've, you say, which obviously I, I understand, you've come in on the, well, you initially came in on the angle of um, the control over people, the lockdown policy and the nudge unit. And you've men you mentioned B, which I think is the spy B unit of the SAGE, of the government SAGE advisory group. So spy B looking at uh, the use of psychology in order to help the government get its uh, lockdown uh, policy into place. And of course, there was, um, there was some famous minutes of their meeting, which was from May 2021 uh, or 20. Uh, definitely from May, but in those minutes, um, they were talking about using psychology to increase essentially fear and anxiety in people in order to make them more compliant with the, uh, with the nudge policy. Now, I, um, I was sent those uh, minutes very early on and UK Column published, but we were fascinated to see them because it followed on from the government's 2010 Mindspace document. That was a cabinet office document where the government at the time was boasting it was going to be able to use applied psychology to change the way people thought and behaved. And it even said, and they won't necessarily know their behavior has changed. So certainly for us, those spy B minutes demonstrating the political use of psychology were very significant. But I, I didn't realise there were, well, you picked that up, I think you were saying to me before you had other concerns about COVID policy as a whole. Is that, is that correct? Yes, but the, the, the psychological effects on the vulnerable, I mean, um, it, was, it, was, it was appalling and, and it was unnecessary. It was, it, was, it was not proportionate to the threat from uh, a virus, which, you know, the average age of mortality is 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 a year older than than the normal longevity. I mean, I, I think Boris Boris Johnson, in fact, vote, uh, joked privately once, catch COVID, live a year longer. I mean, his words and deeds really didn't match when it came to the government policy of, of implementing it. It was pure project fear, and I'm you know I wasn't happy. You know, I was very very upset that that, that vulnerable members of my constituency became collateral damage of that. And they think it's a great success. Well, I'm, I don't agree at all. I think I think we've damaged we've damaged our children, young people. Um, I've actually got a four year old, and and at one stage, you know, ninety percent of his life was spent in lockdown. That's no life at all. Um, it's not so bad if uh, if you're in your fifties and uh, you know two years of lockdown is 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 bad enough. But for the small children, it's a huge part of their life and development, and uh, they're going to carry that uh, for decades forward. And of course, the loss of education, it pushed some of my schools, uh, which were, you know, at times struggling. I mean, I had teachers that used to tell me that, that when the pupils come back after the six weeks summer holiday, it takes a couple of weeks to get them back into the routine of school. Well, they had a lot longer than that off. And uh, again, that favoured households with, uh, with lots of... Um, of gadgets and, and iPads and laptops and plenty of room to work from home and, and, and homeschooling. 
and, and the most vulnerable households with in overcrowded housing. And I said many times on the media that, you know, these lockdowns, it's all right speaking to people on the BBC about them. They're having a good lockdown. They are enjoying working from home. A lot of people weren't having a good lockdown. They didn't have, perhaps didn't have access to back gardens to uh, go and get some fresh air. They're probably living in overcrowded housing. Again, it was a, a huge differentiator between the haves and the have-nots. And, uh, and the have-nots uh, fell certainly further behind. Um, alarm bells were, were ringing uh, around all of this. And then, obviously, when the Partygate uh, revelations came out, I mean, they were fascinating. Um, I, I, I suspected something was afoot, Brian, because um, in, in that uh, December 21, I suddenly got an invite to go to Number 10 for a party. Um, we weren't under any lockdowns, but I knew that the government were looking at a plan B and locking us down again for another Christmas. So I, I politely emailed back to Number 10 saying, oh, you know, given that you're looking at... Um, restricting the freedoms of my constituents uh, in the, over Christmas. Um, I don't think it's really appropriate for me to come for drinks at, at number 10 if, if that's what you're planning. Um, I'm happy to meet with the Prime Minister if he wants to talk to me about anything uh, on a one-to-one -one basis or in a small group, but I don't, think it's, I don't think that would be appropriate. And I didn't hear anything back, but then they invited me the week after and they just announced what their plan B uh, restrictions were looking to be and they were fairly draconian and I wrote back to them again and said mm, it's actually got worse uh, I'm not coming because this is not appropriate if you're going to take the freedoms away from my constituents in a week's time why should I be coming for drinks at number 10 for a party and then of course then all the MPs had been through there and then the party gate uh, broke and it's almost as if they were looking to dip everyone's hands in the blood well I didn't fall for that one um, and I and, and, and clearly, those people at number 10 who were taking complete disregard to the rules they'd made for everyone else, they knew all the science, Brian. They knew all the risks and they weren't masking. They weren't socially distancing. They weren't bothered about killing granny or anything else. Um, and that made me feel quite ill, quite honestly. So I'm, I wrote that uh, article for The Telegraph saying that Boris Johnson, uh, it was time for him to go uh, in early January. Uh, and that set me on a course, really, with uh, with CCHQ and the leadership. And I think that's probably one of the contributing factors to where we've landed where we have now. Is the behaviour that you witnessed, is that something which, as you saw it, so the country's being locked down and then you see the, um, uh, the political elite having parties, was this behaviour that was, I'm going to say, was the style of the behaviour the norm? Or was this something that you saw and you thought, this is incredible? I thought it was incredible. And when, and I thought at the same time as you've been, your policies have pushed certainly some of my constituents to take their own lives in despair. And you've been having parties that, that was completely beyond the pale for me. And I, I've been an MP long enough and I've done enough TV interviews, a lot of TV interviews, thousands and thousands and thousands over the years. I know all the cameramen, Brian, and I met them last summer or the summer before. Um, and they'd filmed all those um, announcements in number 10. And they told me about it because they'd all been in there. And they said that uh, normally they'd take a team of four in, you know, the sound man, the cameraman, a producer and somebody else to help them. 
they were told it's only going to be one person. You've got to be jabbed. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to have a negative PCR test. And of course, it ended up being the cameraman. So he had to do everything. And they were all moaning about it. But what they told me was that when they set up in front of those podiums and it's all socially distanced in front and people wearing masks and everything, if he'd swung the camera around 180 degrees, there were there were dozens of spads standing right behind the camera, not socially distanced, not masked. Um, it was a pure pantomime for the public. And, and that horrified me. So you've used the word pantomime at... Uh... Uh, a couple of years ago, it would be now, we interviewed um, Dr. Christian Perron, who in his day was head of vaccination policy in France. Um, he was utterly astonished at what he was seeing unfold, principally in France, but it, he was also able to talk about UK as well. And he, he described the unfolding um, of the policy as a whole and lockdown as madness. So you you were you were clearly in good company, and we can we can understand that from other qualified individuals that that we've spoken to. So we we've got the psychological part, which you definitely uh, responded to, and you you've described the um, duplicity. I think I'm going to call it that that was going on inside the political establishment. One rule for the public, and another rule inside Westminster. When was the first time that you started to have concerns about the vaccination itself? Well, I'm double vaxxed with AstraZeneca. And shortly after I was vaccinated, I was I had heard a few rumours, uh, which, to be honest, I, I dismissed. Um, I didn't believe that uh, the vaccines could, wouldn't be safe and effective. Um, but then I started checking on the science and reading the literature getting reports of vaccine harms, and the data didn't ring true that was coming from the government. And they were, no, no, weren't giving the right answers, quite honestly, and uh, it was clear. And once, once they'd said things like the science is settled and no one can challenge the narrative of the safe and effective, well, I mean, that isn't science at all. Science only works by challenge. I mean, it's, it is very similar to the, the science is settled over man-made global warming. Um, that is, is, is actually an oxymoron. Science is never settled. Um, whatever thesis is put forward is only actually lasts until a better idea is proposed or it's modified or, or in fact, it's debunked in, in due course. That's the way science works. So science is never settled. And, and when I heard that argument, it's, it set alarm bells ringing, quite honestly. And when I saw eminent scientists, Nobel Prize winners being being abused and um, closed down on, on social media for raising legitimate concerns. Um, I mean, it's, it, science is like democracy and, and debate. It's, it's, it, it has to be free and open and you have to defend your position and, and that's what you have to do. You don't do that by just closing down opposition. That's, that's tyranny. And uh, all of these alarm bells were ringing. So that just made me dig into it even more. And, and given my background, I, I was able to read papers and, and understand them. I could meet with scientists and understand what, what they were actually saying to me. And um, I say we got to the point where I could have spoken out probably if, certainly six months before I did. Um, but when they went for vaccination of, of babies, I couldn't stand back any, anymore, Brian. It, it, that was it. 
Um, and whatever they were going to do to me, they're going to do to me. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm completely comfortable about all of that. And I would do it again and again and again any day with a Y in it. I'm really glad you did do it. Many people are glad you did it because, of course, uh, you stand up to be counted and other people are encouraged to come forward and, and to help. Um, so say once again, well done for that. You did the, um, the speech in Westminster to a virtually empty chamber. How did that feel? It was disappointing, but I was completely comfortable with the speech. I knew it was controversial. I knew the mainstream media, because I was going against the narrative, would seek to uh, say that it wasn't correct. So I had actually had it fact-checked by uh, scientists and doctors. And as soon as I sat down from that speech, I released, I think there's 32 scientific papers backing up every statement, and it was all itemised. And I sent that out to all the media. And what happened then is they, they couldn't um, disparage what I'd said, so they just ignored it. It didn't really happen. But I, but I put it out on social media, and um, about a month ago, it had had 12, 12 million views across social media of that 20-minute um, speech, which is quite quite a commitment on social media for someone to listen to a 20-minute speech. Um, so they didn't really suppress it. Um, and um, my social media, which had been pretty stagnant for a few years since Brexit, um, about 44,500 followers on on Twitter, um, I think this morning, we, well, yesterday, we breached 160,000. Um, so there might not be any interest from colleagues in the chamber, but there was a lot of interest from the public. There's growing interest and concern from around the world. Uh, and even in Parliament, Brian, there's, there's about 4,000 people work in Parliament, and most of them are cooks, cleaners, waiters, security guards and clerks. They far outnumber the uh, elected members of parliament and the appointed members of the House of Lords. And the people who work in parliament, they uh, they know um, that most of them are, are very awake to what's been going on. And lots of them come up to me quietly every day and say, thank you for what you're doing. It's just frustrating that the people who can actually make a genuine change, um, I believe for the better, um, many of them don't want to know it appears to me, or completely in in uh, in denial of, of the, the clear, obvious science, scientific data that's out there, that the vaccines are are not safe, they're not, not effective, they're not necessary at all for anyone, probably under 75, they should never have been rolled out as they were, and uh, we should have stopped, from the government's own data, we should have stopped rolling them out a very, very long time ago. Um, I welcome that the government's Volta Fasse on, on who's going to be eligible for the autumn booster. But I mean, I really would have urged anybody um, to, to check the science out for themselves. Uh, I think the, the risks from repeated use of these uh, experimental vaccines uh, far outweighs the risk of um, hospitalization or death from COVID-19 itself, uh, especially the Omicron variant. The basic um policy of the NHS is that people should be able to make an informed choice about any any medication. So if we take vaccinations as being a form of medication, if we're happy to accept that, then the rule says that each and every person should be fully informed of, of benefits and risks before they agree to medication. But 
Um, it's very noticeable in the rollout of the vaccine policy. Um, and we were told by a, a considerable number of people who, who went for vaccinations that they were simply not told about risk. At least they may be given, you might get a stiff arm or you might feel a bit poorly for a couple of hours. But, but the overwhelming feedback from people is that they were certainly not told of all the potential major risks that they could suffer. Hey, Sorry, go ahead. And what we were told wasn't actually correct, was it, Brian? We were told that the vaccine will stay in the injection site. And we know now that for most people, it travels all over the body and to all, all the organs. We were told that if we took it, um, we'd be protected from COVID-19. That's not the case. Uh, indeed, there's a lot of evidence now that people who've had multiple boosters are more likely to contract COVID-19 or any other virus uh, because of the damage to their immune system. And we were told if you take it, you won't be transmitting it to anyone else. You're protecting everyone else, not just yourself. And that's not true either. You, you still will transmit it. So there's very little that we have been told that's true uh, about the, the vaccines. So um, we have to question everything now. Yes, question everything. Uh, can we just talk a little bit about the, um, the safety side? Because, of course, for, for many people, the organisation that will come into view straight away if we talk risk and safety for pharmaceutical products is the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regula Regulation Agency. And Regulation, yes. Yes, they, they came into the UK Columns sites very early on because it was pointed out to us that they were releasing uh, basic data statistics on uh, the vaccines administered and via their yellow card system, they were recording um, adverse reactions. But the manner in which that data was being pushed out was very uh, piecemeal. It, it was difficult to search if you wanted to search for one particular um, adverse reaction. Um, their printed data did not make that easy. So um, UK column, well, in fact, Mike Robinson, who, who you spoke to briefly as we were setting up this interview, uh, was one of the people who was instrumental in, in us databasing the MHRA data. So we took the official government data and put it into a, um, a search engine that any member of the public could search through to see on a um, name for the vaccine and what the adverse reactions have been. And it became apparent to us very quickly that the MHRA was recording a number of not only minor adverse reactions, but they were also recording significant major adverse reactions such as um, neurological damage or hearing problems or eyesight problems or um, significant bleeding. Um, and yet there was no commentary. So just now you mentioned that the government uh, effectively promised a risk, a risk assessment on the use of applied psychology, and you said that get, didn't get done. When we started to ask the MHRA whether they'd done any form of risk assessment on the vaccines themselves, um, it's been a wall of silence. MHRA are actually funded 86% by Big Pharma themselves. And the, the, another body that has input is the, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization. 
And in their personal declaration of interest, they between them, they declared over a billion pounds of investments in, in big pharma. So uh, the fear is that our regulators, those institutions set up, agencies set up to protect public interest have been have been captured by by big pharma. I think, as I said in one of my speeches, it, it appears that the uh, the gamekeeper is being paid by the poacher. Um, and I think that you know, the MHRA said that they've gone from regulator to enabler. Well, what have they enabled? Um, quite honestly, um, I think this will go down as the uh, as the biggest health uh, scandal in the world. And, and and big pharma have got a history of of all of this. Um, I uh, I hosted an event um, at the Carlton Club um, a couple of months ago. And I had Dr. Ryan Cole and Dr. Robert Malone flew in from America to speak at it. And uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra, the cardiologist, uh, spoke. And I spoke last at that event. And I, I said that uh, I couldn't really, although I, my background was in, in biological sciences, you'd heard from the experts. It was no good me talking about the science when I've got these experts here. But I would tell the, the audience a story, which was a story about big pharma and how you know they developed this wonderful super drug to combat um, symptoms in pregnancy which was given out and it worked but unbeknownst to those pregnant women who took this drug in good faith the the drug itself not only went in their bloodstream but through the placenta barrier into the unborn child and prevented limb development and we know that story that 40 percent of the 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 babies affected died and 60% were left with horrendous uh, disability. And um, that people know that part of the story, but what they probably don't know is that the people we're dealing with, that was a company called Chemie Grunethal. It was a German company that developed that drug, the wonder drug. And when it was discovered what it was doing in the UK, they withdrew it from the UK market. But what people don't know is that those, those people under a different name carried on selling that drug in full knowledge of what it was doing into Spain for another 25 years. And, and I don't have a word for, for that level of evil, Brian. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it. I was asked the question, were you talking about the spina bifida defects there, or is this another pharmaceutical uh, product? We've got other products where the MHRA has been very outspoken on them. Sodium valparate is, is one, uh, where in, um, MHRA minutes and indeed in some of their board meetings, um, they've been happy to still be warning about the dangers of particular pharmaceutical products and they're withdrawing some. We've withdrawn vaccines for one in 10,000 um, adverse events. Um, I would put it that the, the adverse events from the experimental mRNA vaccines are, are far in excess of one in 10,000. And yet there's no hint of, of withdrawing these products from general usage. Uh, they've been, been given to pregnant women, which they are, the, you know, you just don't, I wouldn't advise a pregnant woman to take any, take, take aspirin. Then they're advised not to take coffee, but they were advised to take an experimental vaccine. I mean, it's um, in fact, a, a medical treatment, which, uh, they had to change the definition of vaccine to allow that them to be covered because they're they're effectively they're actually gene therapies, um, which I guess if if everyone knew if they were labelled as gene therapies, I guess the uptake would not have been as uh, as high as it was. So this was another twist of the truth in order to 
mislead people and get them to adhere to the to the government's preferred policy. Um, it is it is incredible when we look at this. I'll just come back to the statistics from the MHRA because um, a few months ago they decided to withdraw even the statistics, the yellow card statistics, in the form that they were pushing out. So we've we've had to stop our databasing because they've now changed the form. To me, this is attempting to blur all the history and make it difficult for people to see what was actually happening. But nevertheless, they did record um, significant numbers of vaccine adverse reactions. Um, we're up in over, over a million in the first um, uh, look across minor effects. But when we get into the major effects, we're still talking about tens of thousands of people. And we're also talking about two, uh, two, sorry, 2,000, 2,200 plus deaths. And even though we've got deaths recorded, um, what people are telling us is that they, they may have reported a yellow card, but there was never any response from the MHRA for details about the adverse reaction itself, even if subsequently it was a death recorded with cause of death vaccination. And this has happened in a small number of cases where surprisingly, um, both the NHS and coroners have recorded that the person has died as a result of vaccination. But this is a subject simply not being discussed. It's not being discussed by the MHRA. It's not being discussed by the overseer for the MHRA, the Commission on Human Medicines, um, with um, um, a gentleman's name, it's a tricky one, Per Mohammed, I think, is, is the man. So he's got ultimate responsibility for safety. But the commission, the chairman of the Commission on Human Medicines, has also not made any coherent statement on risks of vaccines. How, how do we explain the fact that we could say, yes, the MHRA is in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, but when they're putting out what I'll call normal drugs, if those get too close to the limit, they're withdrawn. They're causing problems, so they're withdrawn. Well, some eye drops uh, withdrawn um, only a few a few weeks ago. It, it's shocking. The if you think that uh, it was a mass use of of a, a novel medication which didn't exist a few years ago, uh, a rollout to all age groups, they knew that these products have not gone through the rigorous testing of a normal vaccine, you would have thought in those, in those circumstances, you would have set up a very uh, tight monitoring system for side effects, and that would have been you know, really accurate. But they just relied on the yellow card system, a yellow card system that's been used for all drugs. The fact are that the yellow card reports um, for these experimental mRNA vaccines uh, there were more of those than every vaccine, every conventional vaccine, the reports for those on the yellow card for 50 years. So for them now now to say they're no longer going to publish this data, again, that, uh, you, know, I'm, you know, that's highly suspicious. And, and I've raised that in my speech as well, asking the minister to explain his thinking behind stopping the, the um, regular reporting of these yellow card incidents relating to these novel products that we've all taken, or many of us have taken. 
I think it was on your website, I came across an audio file, a short two minute, two minute, 20 second audio file of members of the public who were uh, calling in to you. And um, they were reporting, uh, I think we're on the subject now of deaths of elderly people in care, but they were making those reports to you. Did you also have members of the public reporting to you about vaccine adverse reactions? I've had tens and tens of thousands of emails uh, since I raised this issue in, in, in early December. Um, heartbreaking, um, either people who've lost loved ones, people reporting their own vaccine harms, uh, and obviously people who are vaccine bereaved uh, from around around the world. Um, mostly from mostly obviously from 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 the UK um that recording um yeah I've, I've been approached by people who've um who believe that their uh, relatives husbands wives grandfathers uncles um who were moved out of hospital um where they were having treatment uh, to clear room for covid patients moved into old people's and care and residential care homes that um that they weren't looked after properly. Um, I've done a lot of investigation into this, and it would appear that, I mean, those elderly people were vulnerable, and they were in hospital for a reason. They were they were having medicines and treatments, and it would appear that a lot of them were moved into care situations without their medicines, and it would be surprising if they didn't deteriorate uh, at that stage. And there was very limited GP access to them to, um, to look after them. And, and clearly, um, when you start reading NG163, which was authorised by Matt Hancock and the Department of Health, I think at the end of March, uh, and if you read that protocol, it's effectively the Liverpool pathway, which we voted in Parliament in 2014 to, to end. Um, that was reinstigated. Um, and the use of um, medazolam and morphine I mean, midazolam is a respiratory suppressant. Why anyone who you suspected of having um, COVID-19, which affects respiration, you'd give them something would, which would make their respiration even worse. And when you add morphine to at the same time as, as midazolam, it exacerbates the effects. Um, well, nobody put on that medication is going to get off it. I mean, it's probably somewhere between, depending on, on, on the size of the individual, the dose of the midazolam and morphine, you know, sort of 10 to 25 hours, and, and that's an end-of-life pathway. Um, and obviously a lot of people feel that their uh, their relatives were put on that pathway um, unnecessarily, and their end was hastened. Um, I've got a lot of evidence that's being given to me on that matter, and quite honestly, I think there'll be court cases about this. And it's interesting that that, that was, was replicated around the world, um, where remdesivir was the uh, the drug of choice rather than necessarily midazolam. So in Europe and North America, and I believe in Australia, they used uh, remdesivir and, and morphine. But the results are pretty much the same. I mean, um, midazolam is one of the drugs that they would give um, the lethal injection on death row in America. The policies that we saw enacted in UK weren't were also enacted in other countries. So we, we saw policies coming in through European countries. We saw similar policies coming out in the United States. And this 
to me, makes you start to look at, well, how come we've got similar policies in different nation states? And if you follow that trail along, you come to the, you quickly come to the World Health Organization, which clearly had huge influence in dictating what the policies were going to be. You've also picked up on the subject of the World Health Organization. And I believe that you made um, further comment in Parliament about uh, what was being proposed with the World Health or by the World Health Organization. Am I right? There's a debate in a uh, April the 17th, if I remember correctly. April the 17th, about I've been calling for a debate on the WHO. There's, there's two issues with the WHO. There's the post-pandemic treaty, a treaty they put forward to all the governments around the world, which they, they want us to ratify. That would require a vote of both houses, the Commons and the Lords in the UK. And I think they want that ratifying by... Uh, April by May next year, uh, but there's also changes to the international health regulations, which, as I understand it, won't require a vote. And and this is really very very dangerous. On, on both, on on, on on in both of those items, basically the WHO want to be able to take over when they call a pandemic or even in the health regulations a serious international health emergency and basically they would take over our healthcare policy but also lockdown policy uh, mandates for vaccination it would be a huge transfer of sovereignty from the parliament in the uk and uh, to a supranational uh, body that's unaccountable unelected um, and pretty much discredited as far as as i would say uh, given their performance uh, during the last pandemic now, an organization the who that you know, for me, one of the most important issues is once we get through a pandemic is, you know, where did it come from? We pretty much agreed now it must be from a lab. There's no, there's, there's, there's no, uh, no animal that we can find as the intermediate host for zoonosis transfer from an animal to, to human infection. Um, the spike protein in the coronavirus is, is mostly HIV. There, there are four amino acids in there, the Cody 4 by 12 base pairs of messenger RNA that the uh, American government have got a patent on. That's not in any other coronavirus. So it, it's it's almost certainly man-made. And, and if you take a, a virus uh, and you make it able to infect humans and you make it more transmissible, I mean, Brian, that, that's a bioweapon. I want to know, I think we would want to know where it came from, who did it, so we could actually try and think we could stop them doing it ever again. And the fact that WHO have no interest in, in getting to the bottom of, of where this virus came from, I think uh, it says a lot. Um, I don't think they're competent to be in charge of our uh, our healthcare in the event of a uh, another pandemic. Um, and also the sovereignty they're asking to take, it's not mine to give away. I, I'm I'm an elected member of Parliament for North West Leicestershire. That sovereignty belongs to my constituents. Um, it's it's the antithesis of the Brexit we fought for uh, to return sovereignty to the people. We're, we're moving it away from the people. And of course, they not only get the ability to call the pandemic, they'll say when the emergency is over. And it, I can imagine it could be a very long emergency, Brian. Could be a very long emergency. So we've covered a spectrum of a pandemic that was called, we'll say rightly or wrongly. Um, we've had lockdown policy, which you've absolutely correct in my view of identified as being disastrous uh, if not terminally dangerous for many people 
Um, we've got the damage on children from being locked down for long periods of time, but also uh, very young children and babies losing the ability to um, interface with their mothers by seeing their face and seeing their lips move in speech. So we've got children acknowledged in the education system as being damaged simply by being young during a time of mask wearing. Uh, we've got the damage done by vaccine adverse reactions, including deaths. Um, I'll just add in there, which uh, by the MHRA's own data, which was up on the government website, they calmly said that they accept that perhaps less than 10% of um, yellow card of the of the required yellow cards are actually ever recorded. So they are saying we only record about 10% of the vaccine adverse reactions. So we've got this trail of injury, misery, death and destruction happening as a result of this policy. We've now got a, a global body, globalist body, the World Health Organization saying, well, if this happens again, don't worry, just give us control. My question for you, and, and I'm really fascinated to know the answer or your opinion on this is, Against that terrible background, why is it that MPs are refusing to engage with you or, or engage with the issues about where these policies came from and what the damage was that resulted from the policies? Why is there effectively a stonewalling of this whole subject by MPs? Do you, do you have an explanation for it? I don't know. I mean, I went out to MPs and for the last few months I've been canvassing them, trying to get support, cross-party support for these debates. I wanted one on excess deaths. And, I, you know, I can't get support from other MPs to have a debate on excess deaths. And I said, look, this is affecting your constituents as much as mine. Um, and I said to the Labour MPs, you know, you can stand up in the Chamber of House of Commons and, and we can have this debate. And you can stand up there and say it's those horrible Tories, they've ruined the health service. And, and and do that and brian they, they said to me you've come to the wrong pub we don't want to talk about that wouldn't not one labor mp or smp would sign uh, i got a few conservatives to 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 sign with me but i didn't get the debates we've actually got a debate on the who i've been asking for that for two months as well but exactly the same response from colleagues um apart from a few stalwarts who stuck with me um that that debate is actually by public petition successful public petition, 156,000 people. Uh, that's the only reason we're having a debate on the WHO treaty, something which will fundamentally, if it goes through, and I'll vote, I guarantee you now, there's nothing the government will say that will get me to vote for it, not in my name. Um, but we need to debate that. Um, otherwise, I could see us in a situation where mysteriously we have a, another pandemic called, um, and uh, this legislation has been sitting there, not debated, for a long time and then the house gets called in and they say this is an emergency you've got 24 hours we want this legislation through no debate vote on it both houses and we've just we've just effectively ended democracy and political accountability made ourselves redundant and I, and I could see that happening Brian uh, I, it might sound unbelievable I could see that happening so we're going to have this debate on on Monday and I think it's going to be fascinating because uh, oh, so a week on Monday and it's going to be fascinating because 
nobody wanted to talk about this when I wanted to talk about it. And I've just got this sneaky feeling that I'm going to get into that three hour debate and there's going to be lots of MPs in there. And somehow or other, I'm not going to get called, um, which, uh, which which will tell a story in itself that nobody wanted the debate. But once it was there, there were plenty of people willing to stand up and filibuster so that views that go against the narrative didn't get heard and put down on Hansard. We'll, uh, we'll have to see where, where, where that where that one goes. But it has been shocking. Uh, they've got time to talk about what I would say trivial matters uh, as backbench business debates. In fact, they were complaining they hadn't got enough debates. But we can't have a debate about excess deaths, which was 63,000 in England and Wales last year. After a pandemic, you would expect, uh, because, I mean, clearly those who sadly passed before their time in a pandemic and we had excess deaths, um, they can't they can't die a year or two years later. They're out of the pool. You would expect a period where you'd have less than excess deaths for perhaps a number of years. But what we're seeing in the UK and around the world, especially in the countries that are heavily vaccinated, is continuing excess deaths, often as uh, higher than we had during the pandemic. But no media wants to talk about it, and nobody wants to talk about it in Parliament either. But this is something that affects, sadly, every constituency every community, and I'm worried it's going to affect every family before we're finished. Is it fear that is stopping MPs paying attention to what you're talking about? Are they fearful? Are they being warned off? I think I think some of them are being warned off. It's, it's, it's telling. I mean, the, the, the punishment that's been doled out to me, it was not only for my benefit, but it was for the benefit of colleagues. Uh, while I've been suspended, most colleagues have been or are being reselected for their seats. Clearly, I can't be reselected for my seat because I don't have the Conservative whip. That's not lost on colleagues. Quietly, uh, a number of colleagues in different parties have come to me over the last few weeks uh, and said to me quietly, you're definitely onto something with these vaccine harms. It's not right. Keep going. But that's a long way short of someone standing up in the House of Commons and supporting any of my arguments in the chamber. It's a long way short of that. I have been disappointed by, shall we say, the uh, the Conservative Party old guard, who I thought we could rely on. Um, many of them admitted privately to me that there is a, a big problem, but their answer seems to be, we're sitting this one out, it's yours, Andrew. What would you like to, just to finish off here, what, what would you like to say to, to your colleagues? What would you say to them? Uh, as encouragement to step forward? I think some of them actually think that the power of Big Pharma, which has captured so many, I think it's captured our healthcare, it's captured our medicine, medical regulators, and I think to a degree it's, it's captured our, our democracy. And it's not just ours, it's, it is around the world. I think they think it's such a formidable opponent that it can't be beaten. I mean, that's a that's a self-fulfilling prophecy unless we stand up. So, and I think the, the, the threats that our democracy faces now with the digital ID, the potential digital currency, we can see a, a banking crisis coming and developing over the summer, probably going to culminate around about October. Um, the WHO treaty, uh, the changes to the WHO international health regulations, you know, we could be living in a, in a in a very vastly different world uh, very shortly uh, after after coming out of the lockdown. I mean, certain voices 
very important to national voices so that you know, things are not going to be the same again. Well, I quite like them going back to being, you know, having freedom and uh, going about our lives and not, not scaring my constituents to death and uh, worrying about government, worrying about the things that uh, need to be sorted out and let the people get on with their lives. I think we've moved to a parliament, Brian, where we have a parliament. It's not even a government. It's, it's a whole parliament that, that appear to pass legislation and inflict things on the people. I, I came into parliament to make laws to, to make people's lives better, not, not to inflict things upon them. And I think we've forgotten who we work for. Um, we're not their masters. We are the servants of the people. And I think my colleagues need to remember that. And perhaps we need to be reminded of it. Thank you very much for that, for that very heartfelt statement there. Very last thing, you, you've got the UK column audience in UK, and I know in a great many places overseas. What can our audience do to help you? What, what, what do you think the public can do to, to help? I hope that some of them would follow me on Twitter at, at A. Bridgen. Um, but the most important thing to do is wherever you are in the world, is to get in touch with your elected representatives, make it clear you, you want these issues just debated and discussed, raise your concerns about things like digital ID, digital currency, and these WHO treaties and the changes to the international health regulations. Because I can promise you if they come in, um, our lives will never ever be the same. And I think it'll be a, a very bad step for us. Andrew Bridgen, thank you very much indeed for joining UK Column. It's, it's been, uh, well, it's been a very serious, fascinating interview. And I'm just going to say once again, thank you for having the courage to stand up and do what you're, do, what you're doing. And I'm going to say, I hope very much that you'll come back and speak to us again in the future. I hope so, Brian. Okay, th thank you.